Let me tell you, you want to talk to me? Turn in a real bad complaint at one of my restaurants. And I read every one of those. And in fact, I had one just yesterday from a restaurant in Florida where the person had been going there forever. And he said, man, something's changed. And they listed what they didn't like. Well, they get an email back. Please leave your phone number. Rick wants to call you or here's Rick's cell number. I don't want people coming dissatisfied. Everybody leaves satisfied or they don't need to pay. That's the, the line. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he, wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where, no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Rick Spell. Rick and his daughter, Christy, own Spell Restaurant Group. Prior to acquiring and operating restaurants across the Southeast United States, Rick spent decades building a highly successful career as an investment banker for Morgan Keegan, which was acquired by Raymond James. Rick employs over 500 people throughout their operating companies. This is a great episode with Rick where you will hear why his career trajectory changed after dropping out of college and then going back and graduating. What he learned from Alan Morgan, the CEO of Morgan Keegan. What happens when you determine if someone has talent, you put them in a position to use it and give them a platform. What about buying a restaurant chain out of bankruptcy? Why corporate spend can tank a restaurant group. Developing people and building a bench. How he develops and moves talent across the Southeast within his restaurant group. Plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Rick Spell. Rick, great to see you. Thanks for joining me. 
Uh, my pleasure, Sam. Good to talk to you again. Yes, sir. Likewise. This is a probably a little bit different of a place to start, but I read that 10 to 15% of people, I assume in, in the educational system, that drop out of college go back. And I know you've had an incredible career in investment banking. And now with your holding company, with the different companies you own, I'm just curious for maybe somebody that's younger, can you maybe speak to that season when you dropped out of college and then what inside of you actually made you want to go back and finish and how that set you up for decades after? Well, I want to show my age first because I went to school for two and a half years and was not dumb, but was very non-motivated. And back when school was $175 a semester, you could afford to goof off. Kids nowadays at what they're paying, it's really incredibly difficult. So I did go to school for two and a half years and I dropped out and was married and had a child. And then the decision to go back to school without getting too much into it, you know, your, your hobbies, your lifestyle changes and you find yourself going back to school part-time and then you realize how much you missed. And so learning became my hobby. And so I completed my junior and senior year in three semesters and, you know, my grades were bad. So I had to have a 4.0 or as close to as I could to get my grades up to what I needed to get the type job I wanted. And so I was doing dumb things like uh, over the Christmas holidays, I would read the bulletin that said they were required to give you exams uh, and it was a pass fail. And that would keep me, I just didn't have enough time because at that time I was closing in on 28. And so I would read the microeconomics book and take an exam so that I didn't have to sit in the class. I enjoyed the class. I just didn't have time. So I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but it was it was interesting to go from a non-motivated student, which frankly, a lot of people were like me when they're young, uh, to a very motivated student. And the college I went to, University of Memphis, which is right in the city of Memphis, made it very easy. When I started school, it was 175 a semester. When I finished school, it was about 475 a semester. Now, I say that uh, so that your younger audience uh, is shocked. And to realize how difficult it is for them now, I mean, I feel for them. The cost of education has really gone up. Yes, sir. I've been with you one time in person, but there's a sense of focus and seriousness that you have. And I didn't have that then. (laughs) And I was just curious if that was a transformative experience for you to go back and to do that and to kind of hone you in maybe in a way that others might not experience or you might not have changed into had that not happened? Um, I would answer your question this way. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And so I didn't understand the importance of it. And so it actually was very transformative. Uh, And I like to say in my life, I've been very lucky in many ways. You're, you know, I'm not, I don't want to create that credit for being smart, but I kept getting in situations where I just was lucky that I made the right decision. And the biggest decision I made was going back to school. I I would just say this about one of the main reasons I went back to school. At that time, I was uh, a Sears Auto Service Center manager. And what that really meant is I had to 
manage a bunch of people that were older and were a little unhappy and they had to do what their job for the rest of their careers, maybe another 20 years. And I was the guy that ended up having to clean the floors, wax the floors at 11 at night. And so it was a hard job. And, you know, you learn the value of education when you're able to do something that puts you in a different spot. And so my my degree was in accounting. And uh, so, Rick, why'd you choose accounting? I'll tell you, I I didn't want to work at another job where I didn't have the ability to leave it and get an immediate other job. So if I had a bad boss that I didn't like, I was going to be able to move it and, and try to find something better. And the accounting degree gave me, uh, in theory, great flexibility to move around. Truthfully, I'm not a big job hopper or wasn't in my career, but, but it was. I mean, education to me was incredibly transformative. And again, yeah, I mentioned that cost for a reason. You go back and look how little was the money I invested to be able to uh, compete against Ivy League educated uh, people on Wall Street. Uh, how about, how's that for luck? You know, right. so yeah, it was very lucky. What's it like for you and your wife knowing that when y'all had your first child, is that your daughter, Chrissy? Right. To be where you're at today, to do what you're doing and what you're building and to look back on your first career. I know you hate the word retirement. So your, your second career, what's it like to think about scrubbing the floors at the auto shop and then going back to school? And Sam, I didn't know you were somewhat of a psychologist also. <laughs> Anyone that knows me knows that I stay away from those discussions. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit. I'm going to try to tap dance away from you because I don't really like a spotlight turned on me. But we're, we're just really lucky. <laughs> And yeah, I worked hard. I, there's no question I worked hard. And, and, and yes, I was very focused. And, and some of that came from people that I trained with in sports that, you know, took an unfocused guy and let me see how they did. And I'm okay, well, I'll copy them. So yeah, I, I worked hard and I enjoyed work. I never, I always had one or two or three jobs. And so there, occasionally you'll, you'll look back and go, man, how did we end up here? But it, it, I try not to do that too much. Yeah, the, the biggest thrill I've had in my life was teaching what I knew to other people. And in my investment banking career, uh, I've, I've taken a lot of guys that were not really, uh, were just on a career path and gave them an opportunity to earn very high income uh, and do great things for people. And, and I've watched a lot of those people develop and have families and, um, and able to, uh, you know, have their family live in a, in a very good income level. And, and I, I take the most pride in that. And frankly, I do that on everybody, even in my restaurant business, it's the same way. So that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. I know you've talked about building a bench, about developing people with inside your restaurants. You just referenced it there. Is there any opportunity that you're able to pour into, you know, I saw at least a few hundred people that work for you and your companies underneath your ownership group. Is there anything that you're able to pour into them given the hospitality industry can often be filled with people that have might, you know, might not have that college degree or might have dropped out. Is there anything that you can help them see just from your own experience and the way you like to teach others? Um, That's a big question. Uh, First of all, let me say this. I I, I currently still have right at about 500 employees 
Uh, I, I would tell you, it, the hospitality industry is going through a restructure because of COVID. And, you know, I think the big question on the marketplace now is where's all the workers? And, and I don't have an answer to that either. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of them trying to make it politically initially said, well, we're giving these people too much for unemployment. Therefore, they, they're lazy and they don't want to come back to work. Well, we're not paying that anymore and we still are struggling for people. So I don't think that was really it. But I think what it was is a lot of people were forced to not work for three months uh, or two months. And, and they went, wow, this, this is a really tough job. Why don't I see if there's a job that's not as tough? Uh, and, and I think that that's a lot of it. And I could name people that I have, you know, long-term employees, management people that have left the industry for that reason. What you just mentioned is what I like about the hospitality interest, industry, which is there are many people in different points in their lives. You know, some of them, you know, just, just need a job. Uh, well, maybe they've never had some guidance I can give. Maybe they, it would help them to see that that uh, they get treated the same as I get treated and because they will with us. And, and they're just all a, a fantastic group of people. Uh, I'm going to beat you to the punch because I know you want to, you mentioned you might ask this, but when the pandemic hit, um, I had to go to my first restaurant, Brookhaven Pub and Grill, and tell everybody that we were shutting down. And I guess they kind of knew it. And sitting in there waiting for everyone to come together, I suddenly became very emotional that I'm about to tell 40 people I've worked with from three months to 10 years that I don't have a job for them. Go get unemployment. And that's, that was tough. I mean, I, I was very emotional about it. I was shocked because I'm very logical and can make logical decisions. I, was, I had to close my restaurant. I had no job for them. It was pretty easy. Sorry. But it wasn't easy because these were all great people, great people that come to work, enjoy their job, work hard. I mean, how could you not like people like that? They had one request for me that day. Would you open the bar? Well, it was 1030 in the morning. <laughs> and so we said, go for it. And uh, unfortunately, we looked at the cameras at 430 in the afternoon and there were still about five of them there. We had to say, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's time to close the bar. But the, I'm, just, I, I'm very proud to be in the restaurant industry and love the people I work with. And if in any way we've had positive influence. My wife, by the way, is kind of like the den mother. Uh, uh, we were asking somebody recently um, what, what they like about uh, what, you know, somebody asked them recently, uh, what, you know, Rick comes in and you're here and eats a lot because we do eat in our restaurants a lot. What is he like? And and their answer was, well, his wife is the nicest person I've ever met. <laughs> so uh, she kind of keeps everybody together, whereas we're a little more on the business side. But I, I, I'm incredibly proud. And yes, I do believe that I've had impact on new workers, people that, you know, maybe haven't been around people like me that have been fortunate. And, and also a lot of managers that maybe have not seeing uh, the tough skill set, the ability to get to a yes or no, instead of talking a, a problem to death before you make a decision. I'm curious to kind of go back a little bit from your career with Morgan Keegan and then Raymond James. What I read, obviously I know a little bit of this story, but that started in 1969 
with 13 employees and had about 614000 in capital. And then I read, obviously, I know there's years and decades there, and, and you fell into it, you know, later, but sold for $789 million in the early 2000s. You were talking about competing or battling Wall Street earlier, and you were talking about coming from the University of Memphis. We already talked a little bit about your story. Can you say anything to the energy and the focus or the performance that you sensed or felt with Morgan Keegan when, you know, with what I read and what you and I talked about through the research, your loan trading operation started essentially from scratch and grew to just $5 billion in transactions there. But can you describe what it was like being with Morgan Keegan in the Southeast during that period for you? Let me let me start by saying you you mentioned Southeast, which is appropriate. Uh, I actually am a Navy grad and was born in California, grew up in California, and came back here. Uh, and it, and now back to the Southeast. It uh, started dating a girl from the South, and Southern girls don't leave their mamas, and that's how I ended up in Memphis. Is that why my wife won't leave? <laughs> it's part of it. I hate to tell you, that's part of it. Okay. South's a great place to live. It has its problems. I like where I live. Uh, we're not uncomfortable here. We do have a home in Florida. I, my my desire was to move back to the coast of California, but but because I ended up having businesses here, this, this somehow turned out. I, I would say this: Morgan Keegan was one of the old line Southern investment banking firms, really at a time when the South was somewhat exploding, and they were very involved in taking different companies public, uh, the hotel REIT business. Uh, they were the first ones to do a hotel REIT, and that's now a really huge industry. Uh, FedEx is uh, founded in, in, actually in Memphis and Little Rock. AutoZone founded right here in Memphis. And all of these companies needed capital. And so Alan Morgan started that firm in 1969. Uh, and it was a small, sleepy firm that kept growing and growing and growing. And by the time I showed up in 1990, it actually had just gone through uh, a recession. It was kind of at its its low, and we just we just boom took off from there. I can't say enough good things about Alan Morgan and the platform that he gave people like me and others to participate in investment banking on a national scope. My business was serving banks, credit unions, hedge funds around America. So my travel. While we were known as the Southeast firm, my business was nationwide and, and a little bit of international. And so we competed against everybody. I mean, I was in New York, you know, once every two months at least. I was in California once every six weeks at least. Uh, we went where the business was and developed a reputation and did business in an honorable way that, you know, the Wall Street firms, the J.P. Morgans of the world, they were like, yeah, yeah, we don't need you. We're, we, we do a lot more loans than you. And but when the recession of 2008 happened, suddenly these people had loans that were discounted and lower in value, and we showed them ways that they could be put together and sold. And so reputationally, what I did at that time and what the people that worked under me that now have taken over since I left have done, I mean, it's really a leading uh, mortgage secondary trading operation in America. When you said Alan Morgan gave you a platform to participate on a national scope, if you had to boil that down, is there three things or two or three things that stick out to you that A, empowered you or gave you that runway that you think about? 
Well, let me let me start by saying I had worked for I was a CPA with Ernst and Winnie. I had worked for a couple of regional banks that that had platforms. Then I went to St. Petersburg and worked at Raymond James. And in a very difficult tie decision, I decided to come back to Memphis because my wife wanted to be near her mother. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. I wasn't necessarily enamored with uh, Ray, uh, Morgan Key when I first went there. But who I was enamored with was Alan Morgan because what he did was not micromanage, but determine whether you had talent and then put you in a position to use your talent. And since my area was very specialized, it wasn't stocks, it wasn't bonds, although we reported under the bond area, but it was a very unique, very entrepreneurial, no uh, precise market that was overseen by the SEC or, or really much of anything in regulatory. He just gave us a platform. I knew every day I went to work that if I blew up trades, I knew that I needed to make a profit on every trade and make every customer satisfied on every trade. And because I was in uh, the word mortgage business and mortgages had blown up two or three times already by 1990, I knew we would be shut down immediately if we didn't do quality business. So my goal was not to make the most money I could, but take risks that would have a negative trade that you know, would make them go, uh-oh, what do we not know? My, my job was to instill confidence in our managers, Alan Morgan, the Doug Edwards, Rob Bairds of the world, to know that Rick's got it. Uh, Rick is a trader. He creates business. But his job also is to make sure there's no problems. And, and so that was probably having the opportunity is one thing. But being able to communicate that with the opportunity you've done, you're managing the risk side. Uh, now, they were always scared because of the word mortgage. They've seen it again in 2008. We all saw what happened. But that was, you know, they really gave me an, a platform and said, go. And, and as long as I didn't screw up and as long as I managed it for that zero loss scenario, they were like, great. You know, let's, let's not screw up. I mean, that's a great opportunity. And not many people get that. And so I was very lucky, uh, and, and a lot of credit goes to Alan Morgan and the, and the firm that he put together that allowed me and other people to do that in other areas. Is the detail, the aggressiveness with restraint that you're describing, or at least that's the way it sounded to me, does that have anything to do with being the son of a Navy, uh, someone in the Navy? No, I don't think so. I actually do think, I, I play a lot of sports, and I was world-ranked in water skiing and spent too much time trying to be great for, for no money. And, you know, I was nationally ranked in, in uh, old man's tennis, not, not when I was young and I started playing until I was in my 30s. I think that the competitiveness, and I've talked to some of my salesmen that worked with me, Jason Farmer, Will Hudson, some of the guys that are legacy guys, well-known guys that really have carried on the business. Uh, John Tuhig also, who was a soccer player in college. And, and we kind of all agreed that, People that liked sports that were competitive at sports in investment banking, it, it, it gave you a leg up, you know, you, you, that carried over. The other thing I would say is uh, I'm a big believer in team concept and uh, where, whereas I was older than them and I had most of the original ideas and they would parrot my ideas. There came a point when all these guys that worked with me 
were, were getting good enough that I started parroting some of their ideas. Suddenly, you know, you have a small group of, let's call it four people. It was, it was more than that. But your, your power is infinitesimal. It was, it was like 25 times because we worked together, we shared, we talked about this. Oh, you could do that? Well, maybe we could do this. Okay, well, let's go pitch that. And, and, and so the team concept was really good. And, and, and all of it became very sports related. Did we have a couple of team members that occasionally got the big hit? Yeah, they did. But, but we could all get back in line. And, and we were just a well-tuned machine. We were, we were a team. We enjoyed working together. Uh, we enjoyed the pride of being successful. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. I, I miss it. A few minutes ago, you said that Alan Morgan would not micromanage you or others, and he put you in a position to use your talent. You've also talked about within your all your restaurants and then your medical company, is there anything that you can speak to from an, an investor standpoint and an owner standpoint where you're thinking about moving people around maybe the Southeast with your restaurants where you try to put them in a position where you're not going to micromanage them, but you're you've replicated that own process throughout your own companies of your portfolio. Yeah. And, and to help you with the math, it's, it's nine restaurants that have about 50 employees each and the medical company, which has about 60. So there, there's the 500. Yes, sir. Question being is, uh, you know, team success and moving people around. L- let me start by saying that, uh, first of all, generally people live in a geography that they want to stay in generally. Now, having said that, have we moved managers mainly from Memphis to Florida? Yes. And my daughter now lives there. She said she wouldn't because she loved Memphis also. Uh, But she now lives down there with her husband who worked with us at Brookhaven uh, Pub and Grill, our first restaurant we bought in 2004. Uh, the former manager of Brookhaven is now down there, uh, managed for about six years, a restaurant there now manages uh, what many consider our most well-known restaurant, which is George's at Alice Beach, spelled A-L-Y-S. So there's a person that, that, that followed us down there. Uh, we just had a, a second level employee, an assistant manager type employee from Jackson, Mississippi in our Babalu restaurant chain. They were a little heavy on people, and we were dying for people in uh, the panhandle of Florida, and we just moved her down there as an assistant manager. But the truth is we're, we're training her to take over a restaurant now. We, we also hired a trainer, one of the top five employees at Babalu, that we felt like she could add more value uh, because she works on the administrative as well as in the restaurant side. Uh, And she's down there now, and I'm very proud of her. She just bought her first home living by herself and is manager and has oversights on on all of our restaurants. So I I know I haven't answered your question exactly, but we want to see good people that are interested in their work and have a skill set to get ahead. And if we have opportunities, we absolutely prefer to place them from, from within. We want people to grow with us. And, and we, we have plenty of them that did. So you're saying you're just, you've gotten a position now to where you've built out an ownership group of, of good size 
over 500 people and you're saying you're just constantly looking for people that want more and that are excellent at what they do and you're trying to move them around and create as much opportunity for them and then therefore drive the performance of all, all your restaurants together and you've just, yeah. you're repeating that playbook and you started that way with your first restaurant and you're doing the same thing today and you're going to keep doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're exactly right. I, I, I buy restaurants generally. I don't generally start restaurants, although we're looking at a few things. You know, when you buy restaurants, the first thing that happens is, is people assume you're going to screw, you know, screw it up. Oh, new owner, he's going to, you know, not give us enough napkins or, you know, something nutty. And our job really is to not screw up. We, we generally buy performing profitable restaurants. That's our, what our market is. And then we, try to uh, put capital in that market and, um, and grow it. And we've been pretty successful at doing that. Babalu chain, we bought out of bankruptcy. We had a goal in mind of what money we could make. And even through the pandemic, we've been able to exceed that. Now we've had to invest back in, in the restaurants, but uh, that was acceptable. We, we want our guests to see that we're not going to let our restaurants deteriorate. So yeah, we, we try to put people uh, in a position to succeed. I, I would mention this may be of interest to people because we you hear about the market of, of workers and particularly in the restaurant industry. I'm mainly now in three markets, Memphis and the panhandle of Florida between Panama City and Destin, which is 30A. I have four restaurants there and one in Panama City Beach. And then I have a restaurant in Jackson, Mississippi. The Memphis, which is known as a bad market for workers, is our best market for workers. Uh, we, we are short to management people in the panhandle of Florida right now. That's an advertisement for any of you that are managers. We desperately need good managers down there. And, and Jackson, Mississippi may be the toughest labor market that we're in. So, you know, I, I know it's different in different parts of the country. But Memphis is the best, and Memphis is known as a tough labor market. Well, let me tell you, it's the best we're in. So we have to treat our people perfectly so that they don't leave. We have to make them feel like a family. One of the things we did in the last year, and this is my daughter, Christy's idea, is we came out with a 401k, which we match, you know, 4%, of, you know, uh, we'll match up to 4% of what they put in. You know, so we're, we do everything we can to make them comfortable because we don't want people hopping around. We want to show them that we're the, the top payers and that they treat our employees like family, which is what we try to do. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. 
That's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He's lucky he was he was not caught. They just didn't get him. No, where did no. like where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house. Yeah, and they right. went to your sister's house. Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. What can you say about, from an acquisition standpoint, obviously you want to buy it, you want to buy it right, and you don't want to rock the boat. But at the same time, you can tell by just being around you and the way you talk and the way you think, you want the data, you want the information, things need to be cleaned, food needs to be good, service needs to be great. And service businesses can be sloppy, they can be unorganized. You know, it seems a tendency in the hospitality industry that the creative space can be a hard place for people to have structure. Is there anything that you can say about an acquisition and trying to build that trust? trying to keep things stable, but then at the same time, not compromising on your standards that you have to get each restaurant in a place that you and your daughter want it, where maybe there's resistance that some people might want to show because of their own preferences. But at the same time, you're trying to make these fit a part of the overall system. We probably approach it different from normal restaurant tours because my daughter's background was also in accounting. And my background is in finance and accounting. So the starting point for us always is, what does the math look like? And if the math looks like something that is a good buy, that has growth capabilities, then it has a good, and, and it's of a certain size. We, we, we just can't buy smaller restaurants anymore. We're, we're interested in going forward. Now, having said that, you, you brought up some good points. Restaurant business can vary in where it is. And we, we have a, someone that approached us this year and wanted us to buy two of his restaurants. Uh, I was excited because I, I, I'm a deal guy and I like the deals. And I thought it could be structured it the right way to be a very profitable deal for us. My daughter wasn't as high because she was closer to the restaurant. And number one, because because it's so much harder to find workers shoes like is this worth the risk or the time because you know that area as i said is very hard this was down in the panhandle of florida to find workers uh but if there is a, a a restaurant there's two ways of looking at it if you have a restaurant that is do, making money and you see that they have so many places cleanliness you know um good management, making the procedures such that they're the same every time. If you see those weaknesses, that's a positive because it shows that you can change and improve it. 
That's one way of looking at it. But but there is a level that we just, we don't want to get into a bad situation. We don't want to get gum on our shoes, so to speak. So if I could go back to the Babalu restaurant chain, which we bought in 2019, I believe, uh, it was, it had just gone into bankruptcy. We, first of all, we liked eating there. So we, we, when it went into bankruptcy, we were like, why? And, you know, I, we talked immediately to a lot of our friends and all of them said, yeah, we love it. We, we, you know, it's, the food's become inconsistent. The service has become inconsistent. We hadn't seen that, but our friends told us that. And so, okay, well, that's an, something we can approve. And at that time, we hadn't really bought one that was ever in bankruptcy. So we were like, you know, let's get cocky and let's see if we can turn this around. We liked it. I'm going to tell you, we, so through the, the way that was bid out through uh, bankers, a bank basically had foreclosed on the restaurant chain. And so we, we looked at it and we won the first round of bidding. But the way those bids are done is everyone can come in and top our bid. Uh, they're given a chance to do that and they have to cover my due diligence cost. The thing that became very apparent, their people, again, back to our other question, were phenomenal and remain that way. The most loyal employees I've ever seen. They had no idea they were being driven into bankruptcy. And basically, they were making good money. The people showed me the offerings. I'm like, wow. And these people were making over $2 million. I'm like, wow, this is a no-brainer. Let's go buy it. Well. The amount of money, they weren't including the corporate costs when you looked at the corporate costs. That's what threw them into a loss. And so we looked at the corporate costs. It was also over $2 million and we were like, we can run this on 700000 corporate costs. And if we do that, that will make this a profitable operation. But I again, I want to come back to the workers at the restaurant. They worked as teams. They loved each other. They had a smile on their face the whole time. The corporation as a whole was being driven into the ground. So we knew we had good people. Now, again, I told you the service was bad and people were talking about inconsistent food. And the reason is corporate was going, uh oh, they didn't say this, but they were having problems. And so they were, you know, they were every pass they threw, hey, let's try this. It was a Hail Mary. Well, then let's try this. Boom. Hey, let's change this menu. Maybe that's the answer. And the truth is, they had let their, their fixed cost get so high. They weren't willing to cut it back. My salary is zero. I only make money if we make money. They had many people making money uh, before they could get where they wanted to go. So we had good people. We had a good concept. We had loyal employees. We had a, a overhead structure that was out of whack. And that purchase has turned out to be a good purchase by us. And I can tell you that because I eat there virtually every day. <laughs> it's good. And we've improved it. Uh, our, our complaints have gone way down. But let me tell you, if you want to talk to me, turn in a real bad complaint at one of my restaurants. And I read every one of those. And in fact, I had one just yesterday from a restaurant in Florida where the person had been going there forever. And he said, man, something's changed. And they listed what they didn't like. Well, they get an email back. Please leave your phone number. Rick wants to call you, or here's Rick's cell number. I don't want people coming dissatisfied. Everybody leaves satisfied, or they don't need to pay. That's the the line. Does that ever overwhelm you? No. It's impressive to hear this, and I've heard this from some very very good operators, as you are. 
And so it's neat that it's not the first time I've heard it, but how will you handle that? Will you call that person and say, hey, you said this, I'm so sorry, I want to make this right. And then you'll understand what they said. And then you'll call that manager and say, hey, we got this, we got to get squared away. Let me know what you did. Is that the process? First of all, we have a PR firm that that accumulates all any com, any complaint or any any email that comes into us or you know anything on Yelp or any other so Google. We look at all of it, and so they will craft an answer, and I'll I'll look at it, and my daughter and I and and, and the operations manager, a gentleman named Jesse Robertson, has the ability we, we can approve it. But if it's just a complaint that you know was fairly basic. Uh, I'll read it, but I won't get involved. But a lot of these complaints you can read and you can see that that customer had a bad experience and they're frustrated by their bad experience because they like the restaurant, as an example. And those are the people that, that need to be called back. I'd like to give you two examples of that. When COVID was going on and the restaurant was closed and all we could do was carry out, and, and don't get confused. The restaurants like ours, carry out does not cover anything. It, you know, we were still, I told people this before, when, when COVID hit, we had to close our restaurants. Our negative cash flow after we laid off the hourly employees quarterly was over $2 million a quarter. So you said this earlier, you know, if, if, if we had been closed for, eight, for a year with no uh, government assistance, we were going to lose $8 million. None of us knew how long it was going to be shut down. I was like, could this be nine months? But it was $2 million a quarter. So we're doing a carryout at Babalu East, which is in East Memphis. And we got overwhelmed on a Saturday night. I mean, just people were coming in, coming in. And we had two employees. Again, they were management employees. We had, we had somebody in the kitchen, and then we had two people up front. And boom, we are overwhelmed. And I... I, 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 the next day I read, we had two complaints. One of them was a mediocre, and then we had two complaints. And when you read them, and, and this is really the question you wanted to answer, you could tell this person wanted to give us information to help us. Hey, I was out here. I was waiting. We had to wait an hour to get our to-go order. That's embarrassing to a restaurant owner. If it's not, it should be. And number two, People weren't practicing social distancing. Again, this is the first three weeks of COVID and everybody's scared to death. Even though they were outside on the patio, man, everybody's getting close to me. And, you know, you could just sense, I mean, some of the things they said was very clear. We blew up. You know, we, we screwed up. So I went to my operations manager and this is, you know, again, this is shortly after I have, this is literally four or five months after I bought the restaurant chain. I said, okay, operations manager, you run all bobbling. Get on the phone and call everybody that was at that restaurant at night. But only three people complain. It doesn't matter. If only three complain, some other people came in there that had bad experiences. And I think it was a total of 27 customers. They could, they could have been ordering. It was all takeout, so it could have been for four per pers, but, but that's all we had that night. He called every one of them. It was the best thing he ever did. Uh, and he would call him and say, look, you came in here this night and, you know, we got, we got overwhelmed. Own it. Just own what you didn't do well. Did you have a bad experience? If they said yes, we offered them gift certificates. But you know what most of them said? Hey, we could see you were overwhelmed. 
we know you guys are in a tough spot. Our food was fine. Yeah, I waited longer than I wanted to, but we know you're in a tough spot. Well, is there anything we can do for you? Because we certainly don't want to, you know, have you pay for No, no, no. Forget it. Thanks for what you guys are doing. That was the most amazing thing. And I'm sure everybody's heard about this. The people's reaction to the problem we were in, they were, it was just incredible. And so, yes, we talked to the people in that scenario that were, uh, that had, had taken too long. And they were, yeah, I mean, it took too long. And, you know, I'm sorry, but I got to tell you, we're like, hey, you're right. And, you know, here is gift certificates. We want you to come back in. Here's our manager's number. You call us. We missed. But the most important thing out of that is the operations manager. You know, think about what his mind was going through. He's fabulous. Jesse Robertson. Oh, I got to call all these people. But as he was calling them, he was learning the value of a complaint is a gift. That's a book, by the way. A complaint is a gift. They're telling you something that will help you. So you can, and, and let me tell you, in the restaurant industry, I've, I've seen a lot of people, oh, they're just saying that, oh, they probably work another, no, you can read these reviews. I read a review at my best restaurant, George's at Alice Beach, most well known. And the, the review said, since you've owned this in the last five years, our service is just not the same. And we're very frustrated. And I have a daughter that has a, uh, a peanut allergy and we warned them. And she got some food that, that she was allergic to. And, and this has just become very frustrating. Well, he's, he's going to talk to me directly. I still have his phone number. I've sat down and eaten with him. But yeah, that was, a, that was more of a direct call. And, and you know what? I have to be honest. My restaurant people are like, well, Rick, I don't know. No, I know. That guy was hurting. He's not getting the service that he's come to expect from us. We failed. And if you fail, you own it. We called him, we apologized, we listened to him. Uh, we, of course, took care of him the next time he was in there. He's a steady customer. He goes back all the time and he will text me occasionally and let me know what the service is like. And that's customer service. A complaint is a gift if you treat it correctly. Is there anything that you can share about maintaining this edge this many years in to still have that kind of perspective of, the auto center that you talked about in your 20s. And it seems that you're constantly challenging your own people in a good way, helping them continue to see a higher level of performance. And then also the, the opportunity that can happen from a net income standpoint on your restaurants. Is there anything that you can say on how you maintain that edge or how you maintain that simplistic thinking on the customer the process, not taking your eye off the ball and what you're able still to do today with, you know, with those examples. This is what I do. That's fun. You know, I don't play golf. Some people are obsessed with golf. They love it. To me, it is fun to look at a business problem and try to solve it and try to make it better. And so that's truly how I look at it. And if I'm out to dinner with somebody new and, and I can get him to start talking about his business. I'm always learning. So it's a matter of enjoyment. There are a lot of other people that want to work hard daily and they go home and turn it off. My wife would tell you, I never turn it off. I'm not, I, you know, I may read every night. I may have the television on the background, but I may read every night. But it's, I, you have a good question. I don't have a good answer for you other than to say, 
this is what I do. This is what I enjoy doing. Uh, you, you mentioned the word retire early. I don't let people use that in front of me because I'm not retired. I don't want to retire. This is what I do. And so I don't know. I, I think that I've been lucky again to uh, go from being in many different type of business opportunities and then having the opportunity to buy and run businesses. And uh, it just seems to be seated, seated to what I like to do. If that makes sense. Yes, sir. Is there anything that you can speak to that would be um, beneficial to learn from on how you're able, it seems you're able just to go through these seasons, get things squared away and then be ready to pounce, so to speak. So it's not that easy, <laughs> but, but I, I would, I would say this, uh, first of all, on the restaurants, we've done this so many times that it's become cookie cutter on how to take over a restaurant and go through, and it's a real problem to do, but integrate it and get it up and running and then slowly modify them to how we do things. And my daughter is brilliant at that. She's always looking at new ways. She wants things automated. For example, uh, I'll use Bobaloo as an example. We took over Bobaloo and our managers were spending all this time manually counting inventories and doing this. Whereas, you know, what we do in our system is set up where you count your inventory, but you plug it into our computer and then it can automatically go out and place the orders for you. It's not perfect, but it substantially is automated. So that's what she's great at. So the restaurants have become easier because, you know, she is really good at, at the administrative side. And I remember when we did that uh, transaction, they had a bunch of, there's a bunch of firms that will charge you extra because they're going to save you so much money. And so they said, Hey, we got good news for you guys. Here's the guys we use and they'll save you money. And so we looked at their costs. We looked at the costs in our restaurant group. Our restaurant group had lower costs, same contracts, Coke contract. Ours was lower. And so we knew that we must be doing something right. Again, that's not me. That's my dog. So we, we just, we have cookie cutter enough that we integrated well. Now, when I bought my medical company, which is installs pick lines uh, at nursing homes, about 200 nursing homes and a lot of the large hospitals, including two of the three largest hospitals in Memphis, I, I bought that because I was leaving my investment banking. It was time to get out of the way of my young guys who were great. And um, so uh, they don't need an old guy telling them what to do. They're already doing what they do. I did my job. It's time for me to kick the bucket, get hit by a truck or leave. And so I chose to leave. I will admit, I may have, on that one, I may have, I wanted, I was so worried about not having something to do again. I need to get up and work with an organism, a business organism that requires you to massage it. And, and you buy these things, you don't get the total look most of the time that they don't, the employees don't know it's being sold. So you buy it and then, and then you find out the, some of the work warts after the fact, boy, there was a bunch there. And I spent three months going, Oh my God, what a mistake I made. But then you slowly figure out what the biggest problems are and start working on. We had good people. We had good people that weren't being managed. There was a couple of employees that said, you know, we just assumed we'd be out of business in six months. Wow. That's the company you took over. Well, get to your biggest customers and, hey, here's what I do in service. Your service is going to be good. If you have a problem, here's my phone number. Call me. 
You know, the biggest problem I had in this company to begin with is they, they tried to hide things from me. Oh, can't tell him. I'd go down to my home in Florida and they would say, well, he can't bother me. He's on vacation. What? Bother me anytime. It's not a bother. You know, I mean, everybody's working at home now and you're not going to call me when I'm on vacation, which by the way, I don't believe in vacation. So I'm always on vacation. I'm on vacation right now. It's called fun. So uh, there is just, you know, it, there's always problems. But yeah, on that deal, I put my head on the pillow and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't bought this. Now I'm incredibly grateful because I've got the company going. It just won a big contract. Our, our largest customer gave us all of his business, uh, whereas before he had it split. I am supplying work for a lot of people that are great people. Uh, they maybe weren't you know, documenting or doing some things that I like as well. We've, we've counseled them. Then it's really come around. And that's the fun part. And, you know, people are excited about working here because we're giving them a, a good way to make a good income. And, and that's, that's what I do. That's what I do. Is this where the athletic piece comes in? Because it sounds like you won't quit. And I've heard this elsewhere, but, you know, which we won't spend much time on this, but I even read, you know, with George's down, when you acquired that restaurant, you know, I think your manager and your chef, they might have left early on. I mean, that sounded like a nightmare, but you, or with this medical company you have, I mean, you were transparent to the fact of saying that for three months, they're laying down being, I made a mistake here. But is that the theme where it kind of comes in where you're just not going to stop and then you get to the other side of it and then you learn from it? Yeah. Yeah. I I would say that at my age, I was sitting there going on the medical company, you know, I didn't need this. Why did I sign on to this? But you know what? You start making, I mean, the financials, they didn't even know how to really make financial statements. And the financial statements they had were pathetic. So I bought off minimal information. Now our financials are great. Uh, And now we have the ability to have financial information where we can make some decisions on and are, I mean, literally working hard on things like today. In fact, I've been getting texts on the screen about that. So it's, I think it is a competitive thing. It's, it's, it's a matter of not losing, you know, and I'm fortunate to have done this enough that I have something to offer. I can't do the work of, of what other people in the firm do, but I can give some overview information on what to do to make things go well. And um, people seem to listen to me and, and we're able to make improvements. Uh, you mentioned George's. That is a pretty funny story. We, we bought that and, and this is how stupid we are. I guess this is part of the luck. My daughter, I'm working full time at, at my investment banking firm. And my daughter is is running the restaurant company and she was going to go down there one week a month. And she's down the first week. She says, we have a week general manager. Uh, he's just not very good. And he's, you know, and, and the, the, he was new. Uh, he had been there less than a year. And of course, you know, previous owner sold us on. He's a great manager and he's a great guy. But wasn't outgoing, wasn't a leader. And it was just kind of in disarray. And she said, we can't, we can't go. We're about to go through busy season. We we have to get this thing run the way we want. So again, credit to her, not me. Uh, then the we had a situation where 
our other manager, our chef, and whose wife I hired to work on the fr- in the front of the house, had a person he spent quite a bit of time with in the rear of the house. And uh, we just, you know, we were like, okay. And he was great. And we were like, let's, let's think about this for a week. And we started getting feedback from our employees. We don't like this. We have a problem with it. And it became clear that we had to make a decision. We had by then uh, ha- hired a general manager from Memphis, a gentleman named Patrick Miller, who was operations over that operation down in Florida uh, for about five or six years. And he came in and, 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 and he had never, he had been an assistant manager at Fleming's here in Memphis, City, had never been a GM. Boy, you talk about being thrown in the briar patch. He's now down there running that restaurant where the front of the house was a little cocky and really struggled with him. He didn't really have a chef. We had an assistant chef working with him. And that place is busy as hell in, in the summer. And uh, man, he learned a lot. And, um, you know, but that's, that's, it's never going to be smooth. If you're looking to lead a nice, calm life without problems, don't do what I did. But that's not how I choose to lead my life. Shifting gears a little bit, I've heard of your ability to fundraise. And I know you're a proud supporter of the University of Memphis where you went to school. And I know you're on the board of visitors there. And you're an avid supporter of the athletic program. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things. But I'm curious from a, from a fundraising standpoint, is there anything that you can speak to that you've learned as you're raising money for things or as you're leading to get things going or get things moving or keep things going in a certain direction? Is there anything that you can speak to that helps you build trust with relationships to actually raise money in a transformative way for causes that you care about? Uh, my next call, which was at three o'clock right now, is on, I'm on the committee, for, we're doing a $600 million capital raise for the University of Memphis. And that's my next call. So <laughs> timely statement. And let me try to answer it this way, giving you a little history. Um, I've enjoyed watching Tiger basketball forever, football also. I'm heavily involved in the tennis program. Uh, just because I play tennis and I know the coach and I love the, the, what they're doing there. We actually just got back from Dallas watching the men play there for a couple of days. When R.C. Johnson came to town as an athletic director, everybody liked Tiger basketball. Everybody didn't understand there was a cost to it. And he did a good job of getting out in the community, meeting the very important people, the Mike Roses, the Fred Smiths, the Willard Sparks. Two of those, unfortunately, are no longer with us and touching people. And he came up with what was called the ambassador program, where if you uh, gave 500,000, you were an ambassador. And, and everybody told him, some of those guys, by the way, that you wouldn't get more than 10. We now have over 80. Wow. I think I was like the 13th. And, and people wanted to give. I, I, the University of Memphis, which was a city college, uh, but so important to the city, its reputation was, in my opinion, not great dating back in the 80s. You know, it was a place where you went to school if you didn't go away to school. Now it offers an education that's premium. And, uh, you know, you can get a great education. When I was at Raymond James, I was tested and taken in a manager's role. And, and I asked them how I tested out. He said, you test out like an Ivy League uh, MBA. And again, back, we talked about my education career. 
I was so committed. If you're willing to learn, uh, you can learn there. Now, if you, you can also go there and in some classes you can squeak by. And but but when I went to school, I was I was very motivated, at least the second time I went to school. So we we had good success. I watched people and, and would give them names. Hey, this is a close friend of mine. Let me go on a, a call with you. I think he'd be an ambassador. He later is given to the university probably about eight million. Uh, we're on another call with him when I guess I can say this on here when we needed some money for salary. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was a gentleman that I actually didn't know well. Uh, I wasn't close friends with him. Uh, and I, but I knew that he had a big interest. And I knew that he was quite wealthy and was an exceptional man that had given a lot of money to different causes. And, and we, and Arsene and I sat down with breakfast with him and told him what we needed. Hey, you know, really love you to give a quarter million to become an ambassador. But he did. Sometimes it's about to ask, you know, if you're afraid to ask, then you're going to have a problem. What the university is doing a lot better job of now is they have a large group of fundraisers out there and, and they're coming to people like me and other people. And, and, you know, we, we share names and talk and uh, of, you know, who, who could you ask and who do you think might be a giver? And so it's, it's just, it's just basic networking and, you know, that, that's really what is being done better now uh, on fundraising. I, I try to never turn down anybody that asks me for money uh, if it's a good cause and, and, and particularly if they've been involved in, in my causes or, you know, and, or before. A gentleman that we raised a quarter million, he called me one day and he says, Rick, I really need to give you to give some to church health, health services. The answer was immediately yes. He wanted to try to sell me for another 10 minutes. He didn't know he already had me. I owed him. So it's it's just networking, really. When you say good cause, I'm just curious, is there anything quick there from a principle standpoint? If you separate the emotion from it or the experience, what does a good cause mean to you? Well, uh, that's a good question because uh, there's a heck of a lot of good causes and you can't give for everything. And, you know, so... I think you just have to pick, you know, what you want to do and spend your time with. My wife and I right now are spending quite a bit of time in the causes of the University of Memphis Act. You know, uh, we're, we're, we've, we've committed some money because my daughter and I graduated from business school out there. So uh, there's a lot of things in flux. So I can't really talk about that much more right now. But that, that to me is such a big part of the city of Memphis. I, I've chosen to do that. I gave some money a few years ago and I've, I've actually forgotten the name of it, but it was, it was, uh, it's, it's part of, um, oh God, what is, what is the, the United Way? And, and when I was looking at how I gave my money in the United Way, I had a home in Mexico. Um, I, 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 I've been around a lot of people from the Latino world and they're such hard workers and, such good people. And this was, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but it's, but it's still here. It's a Latino, some type of a Latino fund. I just randomly uh, allocated my money to them because, you know, I thought it was a, a great group of hardworking people. And I thought its presence in Memphis wasn't as good as it should be. And that seemed like a good cause. At one point I was heavily involved in Teach for America. And, and, and through that, I got one of my close friends who's now their largest donor in Memphis, but uh, I thought that was a good cause. 
We have some uh, high school and lower education issues in Memphis. And education has been so good for me. Why would I not want to help that field? I, I would tell you this. There, there are some people. I'm, I'm that big. But let me tell you, there are some giants in Memphis that don't like their name known that are doing things in philanthropy in Memphis that are so incredibly impressive to me. Uh, so I don't want to take any credit for being somebody that's, you know, my, again, I'm that small, but man, there's some real superstars that are very giving people in Memphis. So what you're saying is you think about things you care about, maybe tied to your own experience, but then you also know what the dashboard is of those organizations. And if you can kind of come behind both of those things, you want to do whatever you can. Yeah. And if people I've asked money for uh, have a cause, you know, the answer is going to be, it's, it's got to be a real good reason for me to be no, because I'm going to be yes. And so, you know, I do swap off with, with my friends and, and, and help them in different ways there. Going back to the business, going back to your ownership group, could you share what you're most excited about for the future? And then could you also share what you're most concerned about? Uh, it's interesting you should ask that because uh, my family uh, tells me I'm not allowed to buy anything more. Really? Because they have, yeah. They say, my daughter says it's too much work on her. Uh, my wife says I'm too old and she doesn't want to be left with a lot of things that she doesn't know how to run. And my response is, this is what I do. <laughs> this is why I have to get up every day. And I'm sorry about that, but I'm not ready to retire. This is what I do. But I will acknowledge I'm slowing down. Now, having said that, you know, I am looking at a large restaurant group that would double me in size. And uh, so I, I do look at things uh, and, and we'll look at things in every industry. So I, I don't I don't really, you know, this is what I do. I mean, I'm, I know I'm kind of stumbling for an answer for you. And you can re-ask the question, but, you know, I wake up every day and I have an ability. And it really was about 36 when I, I suddenly the light clicked on to me that I could see things that others couldn't. I could understand how to buy things with leverage that gin my yields up to very, very high levels. And I've, I've actually tried to share this with quite a few of the people that I worked with and only one or two of them ever even tried things like that. Most people want to live a basic life and are, are very comfortable in it. This for whatever reason, this is what I need to do. I think I was, again, I was very lucky to find myself in a position to see, you know, what is the value of cash flows and all the factors that go into a company. Um, I, I could quickly evaluate and get to a bottom line. So it just feeds something that I think I needed to do. So is there anything, well, I guess maybe I can answer it based off of what you shared, but for example, Six million people unemployed, 11 million jobs open, 1.6 of those from what I saw in January or in the hospitality space. You got all this data. You got things going on geopolitically. You got things going on economically. It sounds like none of that stuff even kind of comes on your radar. What you're saying is you're looking at this restaurant group that might double your size. You know you're not going to stop. I guess you don't see all these other things kind of on the on the outside, you're just kind of focused on the next deal. Is that a fair statement? Actually, I do see those things. And there has been a couple of like, we'd like to expand Bobaloo and Olive Branch. and We consider doing it in Lakeland. And, and we have some opportunities in Florida. 
And I just opening a new restaurant and finding those new restaurants and taking them from other places. And it's made me be a little more conservative there. So I'm not stopping, but it does change the, the line of which I will do something. So I am more conservative in that respect. Last question I got for the industry, restaurant industry itself, and for the future. Are there any clear things that you see that we've already seen that are the way it's evolving that will continue to drastically change uh, for the years in the future that you're prepared for or you're seeing? You know, uh, 10 years ago, people were always asking, what are you, what's wrong with you? Why are you buying restaurants? And I don't, we don't cook at our house. Yeah. And I just really believe a lot of people are like that. They enjoy going out and enjoying some casual time where they don't. Some people cook, I get it, but a lot of people like to eat out. And I, I don't think that's going to change. Now, I am concerned about the cost of food, which has gone up. I was actually studying that this morning. So my restaurants, the food costs are up 2 to 7%. And we all know the cost of labor is going up. So I think that the biggest trend I could see is that you're going to see the cost to eat out uh, go up. Now, some of my workers, uh, my partners, some other people say, ah, but don't worry, people still want to eat out. There is a level, it's basic microeconomics, where if you charge too much, suddenly you will have fewer customers. So I'm very concerned about that point. I'd, I'd like to branch out from that just a little bit. I am concerned about the worker situation. Uh, at my medical company, right, we've been, we, have, we put an ad out and we've been, had really pretty good response. We've had eight people scheduled for interviews and none of them showed up. People nowadays are so used to ghosting people on the phone. Oh, I might. People don't like to talk about negative things. So if it's something negative, what do they do on your phone? They just don't answer. My daughter doesn't answer my wife when my wife emails her about something she doesn't want to talk about. <laughs> you got ghosted. People have decided the job interviews like that. Well, no, I, I don't get that. I mean, if I am not going to show up for a job interview, I'm going to text them back and say, sorry, I've changed my mind or Sorry, I can't mind, make it. But, you know, that's, that, is, that is teaching a skill set that allows somebody to go, eh, maybe I really don't want that job. And sometimes what they're really saying is, I'm not used to interviewing and I don't like going on an interview. So they talk themselves out of going on an interview. That's a bad thing. And that's a, a high school educated type skill set that we need to be teaching, which is personal responsibility. The ability to say yes, the ability to say no, but don't say nothing. I like good news. I like bad news. I don't like no news. And I wish everybody would live by that principle. I also think we have, have to take a, and I'm going to touch politics ever so slightly, although you might want me to touch it heavy so that, you know, a lot of people will call me an idiot. <laughs> but we, we have a real problem in this country in that we have, there's a lot of people at borders or Jamaicans or other, because there's a lot of Jamaicans brought in under a specific program down in Florida. Uh, they want to be here to work. And we have a lot of jobs for them. And lately we've been saying we don't want immigrants. The immigrant, uh, immigrants brought into this country dropped from, in the last four years, dropped from a million a year to 400,000 at a time when we don't have enough workers. And we have a lot of people that want to be here to work and they will be making more money than the countries they were in. So I think we have to really take a hard look at, 
at what we want to do. If we want our country to keep growing, if we want our GDP to continue to go up, we have to have workers. If, if so many workers are saying, I don't want that job, we really need them from somewhere. You know, so I, I, think, I think we're trying to win arguments and say, see, I want an argument and we're harming our country. Uh, and uh, and I, if I could say one thing to people, uh, don't walk around the world complaining about everything. Challenge whether you're one of those people that complains about everything or if, if you're around a bunch of negative people, get away from them. You know, be positive. Think about what you can do to grow uh, or to learn. I, I just had an, uh, a, a, I met someone yesterday uh, that I was trying to mentor. He's a friend's son and he's struggling with what do I do with my job? He has a job. It's not the job he wants. And so I was, I was trying to, to help him. And, um, you know, he, he just, he, he, he was just nervous about the next step. I said, hey, forget what you're going to make. Get the job where you can earn the most in the learn the most in the next four years. If you're in zero and can live, but you learn a lot, it makes you more valuable for the next job. And a lot of people want it all now when what they really need to be focused on is what will this job teach me and how can I sell that for the next job? And that's what I did. You know, I had a little bit of knowledge and I gained a little bit more. And then I told people about my knowledge and what I could do for them. And from there, I can move on to another job. And, and so don't think about the negative part of what's going on. Think about how you can make it more positive. The outlook at you personally is the most important thing somebody can do to help themselves. It's fun also to see just where you're at with your work, with your company, the size of it in your previous career, but in the game. And, uh, you know, I think anybody that's listening, I can say this myself, there's times where you know, you, you get in and you, you clean it up and you get things squared away. And then there's times where you might put your head in the sand or don't want to address it. And essentially what I hear you, you saying is even decades in, you're still going to buy restaurants where the manager might need to go and the chef might have to go too. <laughs> and you're spending those weeks hitting your head in the pillow, but that's the way it's always going to be. And forward moving, taking action and, and getting things squared away and getting it right for for everyone else. And the more you procrastinate, the more you try to act like that doesn't exist, the more you hurt yourself. And from an education standpoint and, and um, from a generational standpoint, it sounds like these principles, uh, you're sharing those because you might as well learn them now because it's not going to change. Yeah, I, I live by a set of principles and I don't see myself being a touchy-feely guy now. I mean, this is, this is who I am. But, but I will say this, Every business we buy, we we want everybody to succeed. And you know, I've seen had people that are kind of disgruntled in their job, and we've 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 acquired them, and 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 they've said, look, you know, hey, you, you guys have really taught us some things and things, and we want to better people's lives. I mean, man, what could be the a better reward? Forget money. I get to put my head on the pillow at night, and I can name people. I got I got somebody right now sitting. 15 yards from me. And if I brought her in here, she'd say, Rick, help me, taught me, made me a better person, has allowed me to earn more money. What's better than that? So, I mean, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy getting up every day and sucking the air. And uh, I, don't, I don't plan on being on the golf course. I plan on doing what I did. Yes, sir. Well, it's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you for joining me. And 
I love this. This is great. My pleasure, Sam. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I want to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this was a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.